The best way to learn a language? Immersion. Living where the language is spoken and using it every day. But if that's not in the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way. And that's with Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts and help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's designed by real people for real conversations, and their tips and tools are approachable, accessible, rooted in real-life situations, and delivered with conversation-based teaching, so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription at babbel.com slash bluewire. That's 60% off at babbel.com slash bluewire, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash bluewire. Rules and restrictions apply. Welcome, everyone, to Long Ball Legacies here on the Pitcherless Podcast Network. We are the podcast that talks about players, young, old, new, legends of the game. You name it, we are talking about them, and then we are ranking them. Welcome, everyone. Thanks so much for joining us here today. I am Daniel Port, your host. We have a cool show. Before we jump into what is essentially part two of our look at Bryce Harper and a, a player that will, reminds us of Bryce Harper, I first want to talk about actually a couple things we got coming up here at Pitcher List. We've done it for, I believe, four years now running, if not five. PitchCon is essentially our annual conference that we do every year right around this time of the year where we have guests from all over PitcherList and all over the baseball and fantasy baseball world, essentially. Come on and give presentations, host roundtables. Really talk to us about the things that they feel are their expertise or conduct interviews with uh, players or other people in the industry and just really sit down for, what, three straight days and talk baseball. It is one of the coolest things on the internet it is one of our favorite things that we do every single year. We give away a ton of prizes. We actually uh, take donations and we use it to raise money. 100% of the money that we raise goes to the ALS Association. And as the amount of money raised goes up throughout the weekend, the bigger the prizes that will be given out. It's just a really cool opportunity to learn from the best of the best and help raise some money for a really good cause. I myself will actually be presenting, I believe on Friday afternoon. I will be talking about, not about, unfortunately, uh, Long Ball Legacies or the some of the players of the past and things like that, but actually we'll be talking about a statistic I created. You all should come check it out. I'll be talking about it on Twitter as we get closer to my presentation, but come check it out. It is well worth your time. And I think it's an interesting thing to look at how location-based studies are performed on pitching. And honestly, just come check out any of the presentations. They are all really good. You're talking from 
the big names of Saris or Paul Spore, Nick Pollock, and Alex Fast, lowly podcast hosts like myself. So it's a really fun event. Everyone has a blast. It's not all just the series to see. There's a ton of fun stuff that goes on. It's a really cool event. So definitely come check it out. Come help us raise some money for ALS. All right. Now, one other piece of business that I need to take care of before we jump into our player for the day is I need to make a correction here. One of our Discord members who I have worked with a lot and I very much so enjoy, Kyle Seller, I hope I said that last name. Kyle, let me know if I didn't. Pointed out to me he's a big Phillies fan. And so he corrected me on a few things from last week's episode. One thing I said was that Dave Dombrowski had put together the team that Harper was joining. And that actually wasn't true. He corrected me on that. Dave Dombrowski didn't become the GM until 2021. The team that Harper joined apparently was assembled mostly by the previous general managers, Matt Matt Clintac and Andy McPhail. So I wanted to correct that part. The other thing that apparently somehow I don't understand how I missed this in my research, but probably a lot of it has to do with the fact that There really aren't great resources for injury information for players when you're looking back into the past. But I forgot that one of the big reasons Bryce Harper missed some time last year was because he got hit in the hand by Blake Snell and had his finger broken somewhere in June. And so he missed some time due to that as well. I just wanted to clarify those two pieces of information that I got confused or had missed. Thank you, Kyle, again for helping me with that. And anytime you see something out there, folks, that I may have gotten wrong, I may have missed or forgotten, I've said before, it's a lot of research that goes into this project and into this podcast, and it's only inevitable that I will miss things or not always get things. So if I do say something that isn't correct, please let me know so I can fix it ASAP. All right, perfect. Now, with all the business out of the way, let's get to the fun. Last week, we talked about Bryce Harper. And baseball is littered with young breakout phenom type players. But when we first are talking about who to compare Bryce Harper to and who he reminded us of, the name that immediately came to mind was Mickey Mantle. Like Harper, he was a teenage prodigy. And I think he represents a good example of the kind of player Harper could have been with better injury luck, perhaps not coming into one of the tougher pitching environments that hitters have ever faced. Some of those certain sort of obstacles that have stood in Harper's way, I think he represents a good example of what we would want Harper to have achieved. Or And it's not a totally fair. Mantle's one of the greatest players of all time. But I think it makes for an interesting comparison for where that teenage phenom type of player can get to. Now, a three-time MVP and a 20-time All-Star, Mickey Mantle was the living embodiment of America's ideal player in the 1950s and 1960s. When I talk about baseball being America's mythology and its legends and lores, I'm talking about guys like Mickey Mantle. He wasn't just a ball player, but was a general cultural icon for so many in America. And for an entire generation of kids, being Mickey Mantle was the dream they chased out in the yard with their friends. And it reminds me a lot of when I was a kid, 
the sort of power and pull Michael Jordan had or an Andre Agassi or something along those lines. That's the kind of pull Mickey Mantle had on kids of that generation and getting them to come to baseball and want to be him and be a baseball player. Now, summarizing his 18-year career in terms of numbers doesn't come close to doing justice to how great a career Mickey Mantle had, but I will certainly try here briefly. His 110.2 war is 21st all-time, and it's 4th amongst center fielders. He did this across 2,401 games, which is 89th all-time, and 13th amongst center fielders. Over that span, he hit 536 home runs, which is 3rd amongst center fielders, and 18th all-time, while driving in 1,509 RBIs, which is 56th all-time, and 8th amongst center fielders. He scored 1,676 runs, which ranks 4th all-time amongst center fielders and 30th amongst all players. He led the league in home runs 4 times, in OPS 6 times, while also leading the league in war and runs scored 5 times, and OPS plus an astonishing 8 times. Just a completely dominant player. He went to 18 consecutive All-Star games. He won 1 Gold Glove and won 7 World Series while holding the record for most World Series home runs with 18. Just an all-time generational player and one of the true greats in the history of Major League Baseball. Now, to begin all the way at the beginning, growing up in Oklahoma, Mantle was a third-generation ball player. His father, Charles Mutt Mantle, was a minor, and, and what energy he had that wasn't consumed by work, he poured into teaching Mickey about baseball at a young age. According to an article in The Athletic by Joe Posnanski, Mickey was once quoted saying he was taught baseball player positions before the alphabet, and that he knew at five years old he wouldn't be able to face his father's disappointment if he did not become a great big leaguer. It gave Mantle an early direction in his life, but also had to be quite the burden to bear. If you really th- listen to those words and listen to that quote and let those sink in, and how that would have affected you. This is going to be important throughout Mantle's career. And I really want you to take a second to let that settle in. Into what kind of burden that would place on a child. Now, it's hard to argue that this didn't mold Mickey Mantle into an incredible ball player. And it reminds me a lot of back from the first season of doing this podcast. I sat down with Kevin Hastings to talk about George Brett who's another all-time great who endured a similarly rough childhood from an over-demanding father. And Brett spoke at length about the damage that did to him, how it affected him, how it pushed him, but also broke him in some ways as a person. And this feels very similar to that. Fear of failing someone you love can be a powerful motivation, but it leaves scars. And we'll talk more about this later, but this would affect him throughout his entire adult life as well. And moving into Mantle's teenage years, there wasn't a sport he didn't excel at. You name it, football, or basketball, track, whatever. You name it, he was a star at it. He was basically the ideal athlete. Now, he's signed by the Yankees to huge fanfare at the age of 17 in 1949. Mantle 
tears through the minors over the next two and a half years. He hits 383 with 26 home runs in 1950 and just sets the baseball world on fire. Now, at the very babyface age of 19 in 1951, he, according to legend, he was given the number six to indicate that he was the next in line of the Yankee greats. DiMaggio wore number five. Luke Gehrig wore number four. The Sultan of Swat himself, Babe Ruth, wore number three. And sports writers immediately caught on to this. They raved about Mantle, and the excitement grew for his debut. He comes into spring training that year, and he hits 400 with nine home runs over spring training, making it an easy decision to include him on the roster as the season began. And somehow, seemingly against the will of the baseball gods themselves, Anything that could go wrong for Mantle that rookie season did. He was a boy on a team full of men that had won the last two World Series in a row. And as the youngest guy in the team other than Mantle was Whitey Ford at 21. He was a babe at this point. And legend had it that Joe DiMaggio held a grudge against Mantle for replacing him in center field that would last a lifetime. And and that war on the 19-year-old rookie... Now, if you add to that the report that a rare bone disease made him ineligible to be drafted into the Korean War, and you started seeing rumors or accusations that Mantle was a draft dodger, which at the time was a huge accusation and was not meant lightly. And this wore on Mantle as well. You can see how that would eventually just grind at you over and over. He got off to a good start as a rookie. He hit 300 all the way through May. But then he falls into a deep slump that he couldn't pull out of. The media turns on him. And while legendary Yankees manager Casey Stengel had a ton of faith in Mickey Mantle. And really firmly believed Mantle was going to turn around. He was in his corner the whole time. There's only so long he could protect him, and eventually the Yankees have to send him down in the middle of July of that year, back down to the minors. Now, at this point, I'm going to tell you a story that feels like when myth and reality get a little blended into one story. And the way Mantle tells it, apparently, is that he gets sent down and he continues to struggle in the minors and he's had enough. He tells his dad he is quitting baseball. His father replied by his father responded by packing his clothes. But when Mickey asked him what he's doing, he says, and I quote, I thought I raised a man, Mutt said. I see I raised a coward instead. You can come back to Oklahoma and work in the mines with me. And Mickey, taken aback and confused, tells him no way. And at this point, Mutt leaves and tells him that if he wasn't going to play, he can find a bus ride home. And most likely, not the most healthy way to deal with this with your child. It certainly was something that Mantle responded to. Mickey said of the incident, It was as though Mutt had leveled a double-barreled shotgun at my head. And, well, again, for me... It's hard to both not see the significance of that. That's an impactful statement. Also see 
the threat clearly that Mickey felt in that statement being expressed by the way he felt as if having a shotgun pointed at his head. It's, it's, uh, it's, it gives us an impression of their relationship, I think, in a lot of ways. Now, Mantle obviously doesn't get on that bus and he gets back on track. And by late August, he's brought back up to the Yankees. From there on, over the final 27 games of the season, he hits 284 with six home runs, and he finished the year as a whole with a 267 average and 13 home runs on the year. The Yankees would go to the World Series that year, and while Mantle played in the series, he hurt his knee tripping over an exposed drain pipe as he was giving way to Joe DiMaggio, who was coming over to catch a ball he had called in right field. At this point, many suspect that he basically tears his ACL here and then continues to play on that torn ACL for the entire rest of his career. This would add up in a big way towards the end of his career and wants to wonder if he had gotten proper treatment for that knee or if someone had known what to do at that time. We would have seen even more than just 18 seasons out of Mickey Mantle. And that's a shame. It really ends up being one of the great what-ifs of baseball. The Yankees end up winning the World Series that year, and in the offseason, Joe DiMaggio retires, which frees Mantle from at least one of the weights in his life holding him down. And this really allows him to loosen up and play way better. 1952 was the breakout year for Mantle. At just 20 years old, he hit 311 over 142 games with 23 home runs and 37 doubles to go along with seven triples. 87 RBIs and 94 runs scored. His 924 OPS was good for a 162 OPS plus and led the league as well. He's selected to his first All-Star game and finished third in MVP voting behind Bobby Shantz and Allie Reynolds. The Yankees again make the World Series, as we'll see many times throughout Mantle's career. And Mantle shines in this series. He hits 345 with a double, a triple, three RBIs, five runs scored, and two home runs, including the deciding home run in Game 6. And then he actually homered and knocked in the game-winning runs in Game 7 as well. Now, a full-fledged star at this point, Mantle's knee issues flare back up as he played in just 127 games in the 1953 season. Now, despite this, he's still fantastic. He hits 295 with 21 home runs, 24 doubles, 92 RBIs and 105 runs scored in just 127 games. That's fantastic. His 895 OPS was worth a 145 OPS plus, but 5.8 war worth of value while also making the All-Star game once again. Now, New York faces Brooklyn in the World Series for the second year in a row, and while Mantle hits just 208 in the series, he does hit two more home runs, to go along with seven RBIs and three runs as the Yankees win in six games. 1954 was more of the same, but with even better health. He plays in 146 games while hitting 300 with 27 home runs, 17 doubles, and 12 triples to go along with 102 RBI and a league-leading 129 runs scored. His 933 OPS that season was worth a 158 OPS+, plus, and he was worth what at this point his career would be considered a career high. He is worth 6.9 war, and he makes his third consecutive All-Star game. Now, 
Despite ending up having the fourth highest war in the league on the season, he ends up 15th in the MVP voting. It's important to remember at this time there were no multi-round playoffs. You basically had the best record in your league, and you went to the World Series. It's worth remembering uh, that despite winning 103 games that year, the Yankees finished second in the American League thanks to the Cleveland Indians that year winning an astonishing 111 games to go to the World Series that year. We move from 1952, and if 1952 was his breakout season, 1955 was his true first super-duper star season. In 147 games, Mantle hits 306 while leading the American League in home runs with 37, with tri- leading them in triples with 11, as well as OBP with a 431 OBP, and he even led the league in OPS with a 1.042 OPS. That OPS was good for a 180 OPS plus, while he drove in 99 runs and scored 121 runs. He went to his fourth consecutive All-Star game, and was worth a league-leading 9.5 war. Now, despite this, he finished fifth in MVP voting behind what I like to think was some dubious MVP decision-making. Yogi Berra won it that year while being worth literally five war less than Mantle. That's crazy. Al Smith finished third with 4.7 war, and the great Ted Williams finished fourth with 6.9 war. At least Al Kaline made sense. He had an 8.2 war on the season. While Mantle would go on to win three MVP awards over his entire career, he absolutely should have won it this year, and it's not even close. The Yankees would return to the World Series again that year, but they would end up losing to their rival over there in Brooklyn. Now, Mantle hit just 200 in the season with a home run. He was actually playing in three games throughout that series, so you have to imagine there was an injury of some sort slowing him down. Now, if you thought 1955 was something, 1956 was a whole nother level. Mantle absolutely destroys every single baseball he sees. Across 150 games, he hits 52 home runs with 22 doubles, 5 triples, and 10 stolen bases while hitting an astonishing 353 with a 464 OBP and 1.169 OPS, which was good for a 210 OPS+. Plus. He was literally, I kid you not, 110% better than the average hitter that year by OPS. Just incredible. He leads the league in home runs that year, and like I said, he also leads it in runs uh, with 132, and RBIs with 130 as well, and that's with hitting 353. That's a slam dunk. This is There's no question why he wins MVP that year. It's not even close, really. Now, he not only wins the MVP, he also accomplishes an incredibly rare feat and wins the Triple Crown. Now, to win the Triple Crown, for those who are not familiar with it, you have to lead the league in batting average, home runs, and RBI. He is one of just 14 hitters in history to pull off the Triple Crown as the only switch hitter to do so. He's an all-star for the fifth consecutive year that year, and he wins, as I mentioned, the MVP by unanimous vote. He was, uh, and for the record, this MVP is well-deserved as evidenced by his 11.2 war on the year. The next highest war total in the AL was early win at 8.4. That's how dominant Mantle was that year. The Yankees make it back to the World Series against Brooklyn, but this time they prevail. 
Mantle played a big part in that World Series as he hit three home runs in seven games with four RBIs and six runs scored, helping the Yankees take down their rival. Now, Mantle wasn't done yet, though, because in 1957 was another season to remember. He hits 356 across 144 games with 34 home runs, 94 RBIs, a league-leading 121 runs scored, an absurd 512 OBP with a 1.177 OPS, which was good for a 221 OPS+. plus. He's an all-star yet again for the sixth time and is awarded his second consecutive MVP award thanks to a career-high 11.3 war. If you want to know just how good that number is, Ted Williams hit 388 that season with a 1.257 OPS, and he finished 1.5 war behind Mantle that season. That's how good uh, Mickey Mantle was that year. Now, midway through the season, many thought Mantle might chase history when he held a 392 average at about the midway point through the season. And the real kicker stat through all of this, though, Mantle reached base 319 times that season, only making 312 outs. That's right, he got on base more times than he got out. Now, I know his OBP tells us that also by being up above that .500 mark. But still, just let it sink in. He literally reached base more times across an entire season than he got out. That's insane. That is crazy to me. I don't think we'll ever see someone do that again. The Yankees go to the World Series again this year, and they lose to Minnesota in six games while Mantle hits 263 with a home run, two RBI, three runs scored. And in the series... Mantle suffered a shoulder injury thanks to a the second baseman on Minnesota jumping up to try and retrieve an errant throw. He comes down on Mantle's shoulder, injuring it. This would affect Mantle for pretty much the rest of his career. In fact, technically, it's this injury that will actually end up one day ending Mantle's career in the majors down the line. This will carry over not just into the 1958 season, but really his whole career as it slowly truly sapped him later down the line of his power stroke. Now, 1958, as I mentioned, the shoulder injury, this causes Mantle to get up to a, little, a bit of a slow start. He has a season more like those of other mere mortals, as he get, gets off to a slow start, but still hits 304 on the year across 150 games, while leading the league in home runs of 42, as well as leading the league in runs with 127. He also chips in 97 RBIs as well, while stealing 18 bases. His his 1.035 OPS is worth a league-leading 188 OPS+, and he leads the league in total bases again as well with 307. He's an all-star for the seventh time, and somehow finishes fifth in MVP voting despite leading the league in war with 8.7 war. That's a full two war higher then the next closest player in the AL, Frank Larry, with 6.7 war. The winner that year was Jackie Jensen, who managed just 4.9 war that year and hit 100 points lower in OPS than Mantle with, a, with 7 fewer home runs in the season and 30 fewer points in batting average and 50 points lower in OBP. Did I say at some point Mantle should have won 4 MVPs? I really meant to say he should have won 5. The Yankees face Minnesota again in the World Series, but prevail this time, winning in seven games. Mantle hits 250 with two home runs, three RBIs, and four runs scored in the series. 
1959 saw the first real sort of second half slump of Mantle's career as he started off really well and then he falters down the stretch. Overall, he had an excellent season. He had 258 across 144 games with 31 home runs, 75 RBIs, 104 runs scored, and a career-high 21 stolen bases. His 904 OPS that season was good for a 151 OPS+. And this is weird, but they had two All-Star games that year because I guess really Major League Baseball saw how much money the first All-Star game was making and said, what if we did it twice? And so for about a four-year stretch, they had two All-Star games every year. Mantle makes both All-Star games, plays in both of them. He ends up finishing 17th in MVP voting, despite, once again, leading all hitters in war with 6.6 war. Now, to be fair, though, this year, the winner was Nellie Fox. He was very deserving as well. He had a 6.1 war in the season. Now, they were different. Nellie Fox was mostly on the back of very good batting average and great defense. Now, I'm not going to claim Mantle should have absolutely won the MVP that year, but he deserved better than 17th, right? The Yankees as a whole struggled that year as they would miss the playoffs for just the second time since Mantle joined the team. And this would not last long because Mantle rebounds in 1960 in a big way, hitting 275, but he leads the league in home runs of 40, and he leads the league in runs scored with 119. He chipped in 94 RBIs that season and stole 14 bases as well. His 957 OPS leads the league and was good for a 162 OPS plus, and he leads the league in total base with 294. He goes to both All-Star games again and finishes second MVP voting to his teammate Roger Maris. That This was the right call. Mantle was tied for second in war uh, that season with 6.4 war. But Maris led the league that year with 7.5 war. So this was definitely the right call. The Yankees rebound as well, making it back to the World Series, where they would lose to the Pirates in seven games, but certainly not because of Mantle. It was an incredible series. He hits 400 across the series with three home runs, 11 RBIs, and eight runs scored. Just absolutely lit the world on fire in that World Series, but the Yankees couldn't pull it out. Now, at this point, Mantle's back on fire. There's no stopping him. He continues crushing the ball in 1961. He hits 54 home runs with a 317 average, 128 RBIs, and 131 runs scored, along with 12 stolen bases and a 1.135 OPS, which was good for a league-leading 206 OPS+. He goes again to both All-Star games, and again he finishes second MVP voting, once again to Roger Maris, who had just, for the record, set the single-season home run record with 61 home runs, while driving in a ridiculous 141 RBIs and scoring 132 runs, all of which lead the league. The crazy part is, despite this, there's an argument Mantle is actually better that season, as he hit almost 50 points better in average and nearly 7 points better in OBP on... Maris's numbers. In fact, while Maris put up a decent 6.9 war on the year, in fact, and that's elite, that year Mantles were 10.4 war, which led the league and should have won the MVP. Did I say five MVPs? I'm sorry, I meant six is what he should have won. I can't believe I'm getting that wrong. Sorry, my, my apologies. Either way, this is one of the greatest seasons by a team and a pair of players in baseball history. They make movies about this Yankee season. This is one of the best seasons ever by any team 
by any group of players, by really anyone. Mantle had actually missed games throughout the latter part of that season thanks to a hip abscess, which sounds horrifying. I'd never want to find out what that actually is. And that limits him to just two games in the World Series uh, while the Yankees do win beating Cincinnati in that series. Now, at age 30 in 1962, Mantle would not be denied as he hits 321 with 30 home runs across 123 games despite tearing a muscle in his leg and missing a month. He chipped in 89 RBIs to go along with 96 runs scored, as well as leading the league in OBP with a 386 OBP and leading the league in OPS with a 1.091 OPS. That was good for a 195 OPS+. plus. He does win MVP this year despite just six war and for the last time was selected to both All-Star games as the following year they would go back to having only one All-Star game. And he actually wins his first gold glove that year. The Yankees end up going again to the World Series. Shocker. Where Mantle does play in all seven games, but he actually struggles. He hits 120 with no home runs as the Yankees do defeat the Giants that year. Now, in 1963, though, Mantle would only play in 65 games. He breaks his foot trying to catch a Brooks Robinson home run at the wall. Back then, the walls were actually still chain link. And apparently, horrifyingly, he went to try and climb the fence, got his cleat stuck, and broke his foot. So he misses huge chunks of the season. He only plays in 65 games. When he did play, he was great. He had 314. He was like the all-star game, but obviously didn't play because of the injury. He does come back in time to join the Yankees in the World Series against the Dodgers, but just wasn't himself, clearly. He plays in just four games. He hits 133 with one home run as the Dodgers end up winning that World Series. Now, 1964, though, sees Mantle heal from the broken foot and bounce back at the age of 33 with another MVP caliber season. He plays in 144 games in what will be his last great season. He hits 303 with 35 home runs, 111 RBIs, 92 runs scored, while leading the league in OBP with a 423 mark, and he also leads the league in OPS with a 1.015 OPS, which is good for a 177 OPS+. He is again an all-star. He finishes second in MVP voting. This, again, was the right call. Brooks Robinson had nearly double Mantle's war that season, so it went to the right player. I don't want to dispute that at all. Now, in 1965, the injuries start to pile up for Mantle. As we mentioned, the knee injury lingered his entire career. That shoulder injury from the World Series years back, that is still stuck around. These things are starting to really pile up on him. He broke his foot. He had the hip abscess. Over time, these things just really wear you down. And we start to see that piling up here in 1965. A strained hamstring limits Mantle to just 122 games that season, and he hit 19 home runs with a 255 batting average. Just a season that clearly wasn't Mickey Mantle at the height of all of his powers. His OPS of 831, which for the record was still good for a 137 OPS+, plus, if we're being completely fair, was the first time he had an OPS lower than 900 since 1953. For the record, this is in 1965. That's 12 years. That's a 12-year run in which he did not have an OPS below 900. That's just crazy. 
He was still named the All-Star Game that season. He finishes 25th in the MVP voting as well, for the record. Now, the Yankees themselves were also hampered by injuries throughout their roster that year. So they actually don't make the playoffs. That's just for the third time since Mantle debuted in 1951. Just a crazy stretch of dominance and success. They would actually, unfortunately, not make the World Series, though, again, in Mantle's career. So this is the end of his playoff sort of career and run. 1966 doesn't go much better. Mantle played just 108 games that year as the Yankees were more selective on which days Mantle would play in based on need and how he felt that day. Supposedly, the way the story goes, Mantle had wanted to retire after the 1965 season. And then manager Ralph Houck convinced him to continue playing and introduced a plan to not necessarily have Mantle play every day. They'd rest him. He wouldn't necessarily finish games. They'd pull him for a defensive replacement, that sort of thing. And I'm going to keep him healthy enough to play in 144 different games in both 1967 and 1968. But they weren't great years. He hits below 250 both those seasons. It's just 40 home runs over that time period. It did end up getting over the 500 home run bump, which obviously is huge. But again, legend says that Mantle supposedly regretted not getting to retire with a 300 batting average. And that would weigh on him. Obviously, there was a trade-off there. The 500 home run bump gets him a special place in the hall. There are so few hitters that have accomplished that. But with that being said, I think it really mattered, it seemed like, to Mantle that he would retire with a 300 batting average there. That just stinks. Now, in 1969, absolutely besieged by injuries at the age of 36, Mantle decides to call it a career. Now, since one of the greatest runs by a hitter ever in baseball history. To really sum this up is, to do it, again, as I said, justice is really hard, but just think of it this way. I mentioned that run where he did not finish with an OPS under 900. From 1955 through 1958, that's four seasons, he has an OPS over one. All of those in each of those individual years. That is a level of dominance that is insane. We're talking Mike Trout levels of dominance here. And I know some people might wonder why this comparison is to Harper as opposed to Trout. And it is true, probably in some ways, Trout and Mantle's careers probably more accurately reflect each other, which maybe then we'll just have to do Mike Trout for our next episode. That would be pretty fun, but I almost connect them all together. It's a sort of one big circle. But the the reason I compared Mantle to Harper first was because I think there really was a connection to this idea of the intensity of being pushed as a teenage prodigy at a young age and how you deal with that and how you react to it. I thought that was a really interesting story to tell Mantle's story after Harper's. And maybe then if we do end up doing Trout with the next episode, maybe we'll start to see all the connective tissue between these three players as well. So now we've got Mantle retiring. And you just have to ask yourself... Much, I think, one day we are going to ask ourselves with Harper. That's the other reason why I thought about this. I brought up in the last episode that Harper, he has knee injuries. He has just all kinds of, he has elbow injuries. 
Just it, it, those all add up. And while Mantle was able to play and persevere through a lot of those injuries that he sustained and still be excellent, I worry that we've missed so many chunks of time with Harper that I just hope we weren't robbed of too much excellence from Bryce Harper. Because even with Mantle, we see how those injuries robbed him of more excellence, of years of building onto those numbers and those statistics. If he doesn't blow out his knee or hurt his shoulder, could he have gotten the 600 home runs? Maybe. Yeah, it certainly would be a possibility if he could have stayed healthy. I, I definitely think it's worth emphasizing just how much the injuries have already robbed us of Harper and his excellence, but also robbed us of Mantle throughout his career and even the bigger numbers he could have put up if he had managed to stay healthy. Now, before we jump into ranking Mantle here, I think it's worth noting you can't really talk about Mickey Mantle the player without talking about Mickey Mantle the person. And behind the scenes of Mantle's storied baseball career, he was always talked about as being the consummate teammate. Just a great guy to have on your baseball team, to have in that foxhole with you. But his personal life itself outside of baseball was haunted by demons and scar tissue. Uh, in 1951, he had married a woman named Marilyn Johnson. He had four sons with her. In his autobiography, Mantle actually professed that he mostly got married because he was told to do so by his father, which you can imagine led to certain levels of either resentment or acting out against what felt like something they were forced into, all these different things. But whatever reason, obviously this doesn't justify this in any way. He had many extramarital affairs. Actually, when he came to his Hall of Fame induction ceremony, I believe he brought both his wife and his mistress. Just not great behavior for a married man and a father. In addition, the worst-kept secret in baseball at the time, both while Mantle was playing and in his post-playing days, was Mantle's battle with alcoholism. And this would plague him throughout his career, likely shaved many years off his playing career, something that Mantle's talked about uh, a lot in his autobiography, the speaking engagements and things that he would do after his playing career. But it would have a huge effect as well on his marriage and his personal life and his children. And Mantle admitted he had never really expected to live a long life. And so he partied hard. He lived a life like he was going to follow in his father's footsteps who died in his 40s. And his grandfather's steps who also died young. Both of them of Hodgkin's disease. Mantle just assumed he would as well. But he ended up out living past that age by quite a bit. In 1994, Mantle finally sought treatment for his alcoholism at the Betty Ford Clinic. And Mantle said that he looked back at his drinking with regret. And he looked at how it affected his ability to be a good father, a good husband, a good friend, and saw regret in that. Unfortunately, though, in 1945, Mantle was diagnosed with cirrhosis, hepatitis C, and inoperable liver cancer. He ended up getting a transplant. And that didn't quite take as well as they had hoped. 
he would end up dying that same year at the age of 63. Now, there are many that let this paint how they look back at Bantle, and of course it matters. There are certain moral implications, there are some demons to sift your way through, and not to mention the question of how do you evaluate the idea that likely Mantle's alcoholism shortened his career, and how do we evaluate that as, a, as an athlete and as a player? And I try not to let it tilt things too much. I feel like it's really easy to probably overcorrect in the situation. It's clear that he was not a good husband nor a good father to his children. I don't know how much that matters to me. That, that It's actually one I really struggle with. It's not as clear-cut as something to me, steroids or drugs or something like that. It isn't as clean-cut as if you beat your wife, you're dead to me. Like That is a clear-cut line I can draw on the sand. And this is different. This is a man and his demons and his, and his inability to allow that, to overcome those things, to be a good husband and father. I don't know what that has to do necessarily sometimes with this situation and what we're trying to do here. So I really struggled with that a little bit, but it's you can't tell the story of Mickey Mantle without including those aspects of who he was and what he went through. It's the same thing about talking with his, about his dad. That's such an integral part to who Mickey Mantle is. If you really want to get past just the myths and the legends and get to understand who Mickey Mantle was, you can't tell that story without talking about his father. And it seems Mickey Mantle fought battles on multiple levels, not just facing opposing pitchers, but a, a battle with the expectations of being a good husband and father and a battle with the unmeetable expectations of his own father, who often would do things like, there's a story from when he was a childhood, but there's a story from when he was a child where he hit three home runs in a game and essentially his dad was like, he was fine today. He could have been better. That was, an, that was a fight he wasn't going to win. He could not win that battle with those expectations and the effect that those expectations then had on his own soul. All doing this while fighting his own inner demons and his alcoholism. It's just too many fronts for a man to fight on. He won most of the battles with the opposing pitchers. He's one of the greatest hitters of all time. And you have to wonder sometimes if he did so at the expense of losing a lot, if not all, of those other battles. And when I was young, so Mantle was an old man, a lot of baseball before I was born in 1985. But I was raised on stories of his legend. And I was obsessed with Mickey Mantle as a kid. That was one of my favorite ball players of all time, even though, again, he was out of the game for almost 20 years by the time I was even born, let alone old enough to get who Mickey Mantle was. And I remember then, as an adult, when I found out about these struggles in his private life and these demons that have a part of Mickey Mantle's story, I realized that I could feel my childhood sort of worship of Mickey Mantle die a bit I realized that it felt like I connected to him in a way I hadn't before. Now I saw him not just as this great legendary baseball player that's as much myth and legend as Paul Bunyan or Babe the Blue Ox. <laughs> I saw the flawed man. And I saw this person 
and he was just like me. And I've not fought his specific battles or dealt with the things he had to deal with. I'm a flawed man, and I connected to him differently now. And maybe the deconstruction of heroism and how we treat it. And it's part of his legacy too, I don't know. Maybe that doesn't even make any sense, but it was a thought that was in my head while I was writing this uh, and putting this together. I hope that makes some sense, if it does. Okay, so anyways, with the deep thinking out of the way, uh, let's take w one last quick break here. Let's go pay some bills, and then we're going to come back and rank Mickey Mantle. Awesome. Welcome back. So let's rank Mickey Mantle on our big old list. That's what we're here to do. That is what we do here on Long Ball Legacies. Let me first remind you of the list. We haven't really touched the top 10 too much recently. That's Greg Maddox at number one, Ichiro at number two, George Brett at number three, Adrian Beltre at number four, Clayton Kershaw at number five, Edgar Martinez at number six, Sandy Koufax at number seven, Tony Gwen at number eight, Hank Greenberg at number nine, and Joey Votto at number 10. Jumping down to number 15 is Willie Stargell. From number 15 to number 20 is Ryan Sandberg. From number 20 to number 25 is Home Run Baker. 25 to 30 is Dizzy Dean. 30 to 35 is Sean Green. 35 to 40 is Prince Fielder. 40 to 45 is Kenny Rogers. From 45 to 50 is Jim Abbott. And then the bottom four right now are Mike Sweeney at 51, Herb Score at 52, Mark Pryor at 53, and James Paxton at 54. Now, that's 54 players we've ranked. The bottom of that list so far is no insult. Trust me, we are going to be adding so many players up and down this list that no one is going to stay even close to where they are. We're going to flesh this thing out so much. But the question is, where do we put Mickey Mantle? Now we can just jump straight to it and cut to the chase. He's going to go near the top. Right now, it would be hard if you're looking at that top three of Greg Maddox Ichiro and George Brett, I feel like Mickey Mantle belongs somewhere in those three. Now, I'm going to jump straight to the number one, and let's make that comparison. Let's go Greg Maddox versus Mickey Mantle. That's tough. Obviously, it's a pitcher being compared to a hitter. The hitter, in some ways, is always more valuable because he plays every day, whereas the pitcher doesn't. But the more you look at these two side by side, so Mantle was worth 110 war over his career. Maddox is worth 106 war. With that being said, Mantle only played 18 seasons. Maddox played for 23. And Mantle wins three MVPs, whereas Maddox had four Cy Youngs. Maddox, I think, is a little more in the upper echelon, percentile-wise, so to say, amongst pitchers, because he's top 10 in strikeouts, wins in games pitched, stuff like that, where uh, Mantle doesn't quite get that close uh, to some of those all-time numbers. And you think about it, like Mantle's either the best or the second best outfielder of his generation. It depends on where you stand on Willie Mays. Maddox is the greatest pitcher of his generation. There's, It's hard to make an argument otherwise. He's that good. On the other hand, Mickey Mantle is literally the stuff baseball's myth and legends are made of. Like we, we, those are the stories we tell that seem larger than life, that seem to have a certain 
air of mythos to them that that just transcends numbers and really gets the crux of baseball and what baseball is all about. And even when you think of the trials and tribulations he went through, that adds almost to it where we see the cost of being that great as well. And at first, I'll admit to you, I waffled back and forth this one and it really settled in on the idea that when all was said and done, Maddox was still better than the mantle. And the more and more I think about it, I, I've now, I've now flipped on that. I think of all the crazy things, because we can't really compare the the statistics, we can't really compare the numbers here, and they play different positions. But just the more and more I think about it here, Mantle is our new number one. Now I don't know if he'll stay there. We've got so many other players to, to talk about. I think for right now, Mickey Mantle becomes the new number one on this list. I love Greg Maddox. Greg Maddox may be one of the most dominant players of my sort of youth. But I think I think when you throw in what he means to the game of baseball, what he means to Yankees fans, and, and really, frankly, to what we think of as this dominant group of the Yankees. A lot of the way we feel about the team now was molded by the teams that Mantle was on and the ones he led. And so I I, I think Mickey Mantle's our new number one. It's a lot, e- a lot easier when it's done that way. But yeah, I, I think that lock that in. Mickey Mantle, new number one. That's our episode. I reserve the right to switch that if it bothers me later tonight. But thank you so much for joining me today. This is a fun episode to talk about. Again, this is one of my favorite players from when I was a kid. Just a really impactful player. We talk a lot where we feel like, oh, you can't tell the story of baseball without this guy. Or something along those lines. But you genuinely can't tell the story of Major League Baseball without Mickey Mantle. You just can't do it. He is that important. He had that big of an impact. And he was that good. Uh, again, you start looking down the numbers and they're just outrageous. There's a point at which you realize that he had a 117 OPS plus as a rookie. He never puts up an OPS plus lower than that over the entire rest of his career. So for 17 years straight, he was at least 17% better than the average hitter. That's not too bad. In fact, I think the next lowest is somewhere in like the 130s. So he was just a stupendous hitter and a stupendous fielder. When you start hearing some of those war numbers, you don't get those kind of war numbers up in the 10s and 11s without being an elite fielder as well. So I think you just really have to look at it and say, this is one of the most dominant careers of all time. And tip your cap. So I really think I appreciate you joining us next week. I think I've talked myself now into doing Mike Trout next episode, which will be in two weeks. So definitely come check us out for that. I think that's what we have to do now. So I will see you then. Until then, remember, coming up from the 25th to the 28th is PitchCon. Everything starts at 12 p.m. Eastern time and will run till 10 p.m. Eastern time. Basically, a new presentation every single hour. Come see me Friday. 
I will be giving a presentation on optimum location ratios, something I'll explain that's a static created last year. We'll go into big in-depth on creating projections using them and whether or not I was actually able to predict how good a lot of pictures would be based on this statistic in 2022. So uh, come check it out, see how well I did, and we'll have a good time. So thanks so much, everybody. Enjoy the rest of your Saturday, and we'll see you in two weeks.